Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with me is the president of the Boston Museum of Science. Honored to have him with us. Tim Ritchie, and, and we'll tell you more about Tim going, going on as we go farther, but we're going to talk today about artificial intelligence and the scientific method. So stick around. We'll do this commercial break thingy, and then we'll come back and talk. Sit around. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question, and I am your host, Brian Karaman. With me today, the president of uh, the Boston Museum of Science, Tim Ritchie. And Tim, before we go any further, full confession, Tim and I went to school together a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away called Louisville, Kentucky. But I know how people like to rag on our hometown, but you know, particularly these days. But when I grew up there, it was a little bit more progressive than it seems to be these days. Tim, you remember it that way? I loved our growing up. You and I both went to a great public high school, yes. a very integrated public high school. Um, you particularly, I think, were a great journalist even then. You were the <laughs> editor of The Sentinel. Um, we were well prepared by public school to be effective in the world. So I have nothing but love for my hometown and for the education that we had. Yeah, I do too. And I, you know, I, people find it hard to believe, but I, I remember doing the math on this years ago it was, um, you know, my, my uncle David was in the state uh, legislature and was a Senate majority leader back when they allowed, you know, Democrats in, in, <laughs> in government there. And worked with uh, Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was uh, the attorney general in Arkansas to raise the level of, of education uh, in the state. And what I remember was they took, if you took Jefferson County out of Kentucky and just considered Jefferson County by itself, it was one of the top 10 places in the country for education. Added in, and Kentucky would have been about 49th or 50th otherwise. You had, you had Jefferson County in him. We magically jumped to 46. So it was, <laughs> it, it was a different time in a different place. The reason why I brought you out here today is you had, and I want, I want you to, to, to unwrap it and, and to for us, but you had recently published an opinion piece on artificial intelligence and talking about it's not something that we should naturally fear. 
And I loved how you put it. So I'm going to let you take that away and unpack that for us. Why shouldn't we fear it? Yeah, so I, I think the way to think about AI is to think about technology generally and how technology augments human intelligence, augments human capability. And the people who need that the most, people who need uh, the most tools to be effective in the world are actually the people who are on the other side of the opportunity gap. So yeah. it, who can use technology the most to improve their lives? Who can use AI and ChatGPT4 and, and all these things out there? It's actually the people who need the most help to be successful in a world driven by science and technology. So I don't want the doomsayers about AI to deny the possibilities of AI to the people around the world who could benefit from it. Now, having said that, there are many, many serious aspects of AI that should be regulated, that, that, that litigation should be brought to bear and state law should be brought to bear and truth should be brought to bear. There's some things are about disinformation and misinformation. But my concern, Brian, is that the people who are speaking doom about AI are painting with too broad of a brush, way too broad of a brush, because the benefits actually outweigh the negatives. And that was the point of the article. And really what I was trying to say most of all is that the doomsayers about AI are gonna make people actually distrust science itself. And that is yeah. the real, because if they just throw it all out and they say, see, we never should have trusted those scientists. And by the way, we can't trust science. Then we're in real trouble as a people. We're real in, in real trouble as humanity. Well, I mean, to your point, there are people today to this day that are still pushing for prosecution of Anthony Fauci because of what happened during COVID. Um, the fact that some of it was gotten wrong from the beginning, but that's the part of the scientific method. I mean, you you try, you have a theory, you try it, more information comes in, you change the theory to suit the fact, to, to fit the facts. Right. And instead of being, um, you know, cemented in a belief that has no association with the facts. And, and yeah, so I, I think that's an extremely important analogy. And we, we use it for uh, here around here. We say, don't follow the science, follow the evidence, follow the evidence, because science has to have the freedom to change based on superior facts. It, 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 has a hypothesis and it proves or it disproves that hypothesis. Sometimes it's right, so it goes in that direction, but then it learns more facts and it has another hypothesis. Right. And it's always in the business of improving itself, always in the business of disproving itself. That's what science does. But along the way, we build up evidence about things like the age of the earth or build up evidence like virus, viruses and vaccine safety and climate change. And as the evidence mounts, and as you follow the evidence, you will live a better life. And science is what got you there. So people who complain about Fauci say, oh, you said this one day, and then now you've changed your mind. It's like, no, I went with the science as best we saw it. We built up some evidence. We tested that hypothesis, and we went in another direction. That has led to human progress all along the way. And people who think that the science should be that you can go straight from one point to another just don't want to greet reality as it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, to your point, it's analogous to what I often say about journalism. 
there are people out there that say we should be dedicated to telling you the truth. And I said, no, there's 4,000 different religions on this planet. Whose truth are you talking about? What we should be doing is providing you vetted factual information. So I often like to use the scientific method for journalism. What I, you know, I may go out on a story believing one thing, but the facts will show that it's something else. And that dedication to factual information, I believe, makes the difference and can and can help people out rather than you know, than separating them. I think it can bring people together. So I one thing. I, I love that uh, way of thinking about it. And when I think about museums, great museums, whether they're art museums or science museums, you should leave a museum and realize that things are not the way they seem. Things are not the way they seem. So you, you, you kind of learn something. You're like, I thought this, I kind of tested it and I realized that. So you come out a different person. And I'm sure a journalist, a great journalist says, well, I think it's this way. You do the story, you go, oh my goodness, things aren't the way they seem. The truth is a lot more either beautiful or disturbing or complicated. And that's the way it is in science, but it's also the way it should be in museums. Like, oh, wow, things are not the way they seem. And that way you have a chance to grow up. That's, yeah, what a concept. <laughs> so when, when you were talking about artificial intelligence, the other thing that you pointed out, and I, I, there have been, you know, I've talked to a lot of scientists who are involved in AI, who say the same thing is that basically AI is still run, run, it is you run it and it's operated by human beings. So the control over it is still with us. You don't seed your, your, you know, and I know a lot of people compare it to uh, uh, Asimov's three laws of robotics. That's a very popular way to look at it. But the idea of seeding what we you know, you don't turn your life over to AI. You are making decisions aided in a, by artificial intelligence. Yes? Very, very, very important point. It is a computer program, like any other pro computer program. It requires human input. What, what is slightly different about it, which is amazing about it, which is some people find scary about it, is that it's, it's a computer program that teaches the computer to learn on its own. So yes, it is learning on its own. It is synthesizing information on its own, but only on the basis of the input that you get it. So it's right. within a system. It's not, it's not outside of that. So to that extent, it is not artificial and it's not intelligent in, in, a, in, in a way. It is learning on its own, which sounds like it's independent, but, but only within the constraints that humanity puts on it. And, and so I think the notion of it turning on itself, like you say, like uh, Asimov, where at the end of 2001, or uh, not Asimov, but uh, at the end of 2001, where I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry, yeah. Sorry, I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that is not what we're talking about right now. And that is what people are afraid of. And certainly it is true that the capacity of AI to learn, 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 and spit stuff out is traumatic and difficult. I do think we have ways to deal with that. But the same technology enables us to solve big problems on the environment, on health, uh, and actually get better at everything we do. So like any technology, it's a both and. So what do you think would be the best application in your purview of AI? Yeah, I think it's applied 
I mean, it, it, there's almost no place where it couldn't be applied well. I think right now, some simple things which are scary to people would involve in education, for instance. I think especially for kids in, in, in struggling school districts that uh, AI, ChatGPT, GPT-4, things like those large language models could be excellent tutors to kids and give them great, patient, compassionate tutors in the classroom. And I think schools have to change in order to think of themselves as enabling students to ask great questions so they can learn things. So education, I think, is one obvious one. Lots and lots of stuff in healthcare. It's getting better and better for that. Uh, uh, and then lots of stuff in the environment. So I think as a problem-solving matter, there's almost no place where AI can't make things better. And I'm especially interested in things that relate to equity, to human equity. How can it enable uh, people from poorer countries, for instance, to vault ahead in terms of their economic development? How can it help people in difficult school districts, once again, to have a better education? Those are the things I think it could be applied to right now. And the fear that it will take jobs and slave humanity and turn us into you know, a dystopia. I maintain we may already be living in a dystopia, but that aside, yeah. how do you address that? Well, it, I, I do think it's important, and I would, I would uh, ask your listeners to go to, if they haven't already, to this wonderful site called The Pessimist Narrative, The Pessimist Narrative, and it lists everything for the past basically 200 years, uh, not quite that long, but from about 1850 on, where people were afraid that technology would displace their jobs, and the truth is technology does displace jobs, but it increases others, it and creates it increases new ones. wealth by an enormous amount. One of my favorite was in the 1950s, there was, there was a union effort to resist uh, operators of elevators. Yeah, so that's just an example, one of many, all the way back to the Luddite movement. The Luddite movement, all about fear of technology. So I think you can go back to the pessimist narrative and you, you can see on site, all these technologies end up creating more jobs uh, than they displace them. Sure, there will be displacement. No doubt, there will be displacement, just like there are no longer horseless carriages roaming around New York City when there was a lot of fear. Uh, well, I guess in New York City is the one place they are roaming around. <laughs> yeah, but, but, I was going to say, not as many, but yeah, a few. <laughs> but, that, but there were tremendous protests in New York City back in that day. Well, anyway, you, But you bring up the Luddite movement. I think that's an excellent analogy. It It will displace jobs, but it will create new markets, new jobs. Which, right. will, which will mean, you know, different training. You don't go out today, to, to your point, I mean, you don't have tanneries, you don't have, you know, stables in, in major cities. Those people got jobs elsewhere and were retrained. Now, the, the switch over may be difficult for people already employed, but it, it bodes well for the future. It, it's just one of the things that you go through in a society, yes? It's entirely predictable. Uh, and that pessimist narrative website is a really, really good one for you to see that over the years, technology does come and greater wealth and greater jobs are increased. If you take it all the way back, say 4,000 years, you go back 4,000 years, we would not want to be living like that anymore. But we would if we resisted science. We would if we were resisted sort of greeting reality with the scientific method. We've increased our standard of living probably 10,000 X in the yeah. last 4,000 years. 
Yeah. And by the way, I love it when people decry, you know, science on a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In their air conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. While they sit in their air conditioned home crying about how, you know, science is destroying them and they're holding the, could you imagine when you and I were kids? I mean, I, I mean, I read a lot of science fiction, but still the idea that the repository of human knowledge, the entirety of human knowledge could be in this. It's and unbelievable. It would, yeah. And it would replace my camera, my video. I mean, all the stuff I used to carry around as a kid, a tape recorder, a camera, a video camera. When I first started in this business, that'd be two, 250 pounds of equipment. I got yeah. about a pound and a half right here. That's <laughs> So anyway, we're going to take a short break, go to commercial. When we come back, we want to talk more about the scientific method. And 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 I do want to talk a little bit about um, the resistance. And you run into that, I'm sure, in the museum every day. So we're going to we're going to talk about the resistance of science and how we can defeat that. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caramel. Once again, joining us from uh, the president of the Boston Museum of Science is Tim Ritchie. And Tim, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the resistance to science today and how, you know, part of it is from religion and you know, I, I I know you from growing up. You came from a pretty you know religious family. I I was a Catholic altar boy, but still we did not resist the idea of science. We embraced it. How do you deal with that resistance today? You know, I think a lot about that, and one of the things that comes from the Christian tradition, but is true of all religious traditions, I think, is this general notion. That if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But why don't we live that way? What is really going on here? And Brian, I don't think it is really religion that's the problem. I think it is people's primal fears about losing control. And they see religion as a way to control the variables around them, whether that's in their culture or in their home or just in the way they look at life. Because religion as a force for freedom, you can see a few good examples of that for sure in the civil rights movement and the abolitionist movement uh, and the movement uh, that for all, all sorts of positive reasons. So I don't think religion itself is the problem. It's, I think it's a symptom. It's, a, and it's pe people really would rather use God than love God. And there's a big difference between Huge. using God and loving God. And so... What's going on here, I think, is that something in science is threatening something in them that if they feel like they, can, they can't let go of it. So when I was the head of the Science Museum in, 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 in Birmingham, oftentimes people would challenge me 
about uh, evolution and they would challenge me about the age of the earth and they would say, why are you teaching our children lies? Why are you teaching our children lies? And what I would do is I would take a fossil that was 350 million years old that had just the smallest footprints of like a dragonfly. And I would put it in their hands and I would say, you know, that little dragonfly only weighed about two or three ounces and yet its footsteps have been preserved for what science says is 350 million years. I'm gonna put that in your hand. Isn't it amazing? And they say, that's amazing. And I would say, you know, if you and I disagree about the age of that fossil, would you really give up your faith in God? And they would say, well, I wouldn't give up my faith for that. And I'd say, well, what are we arguing about? Let's just, let's just follow the evidence on that. Just hang with me on this. Let's follow the evidence. And we wouldn't always agree, but we would become friends in that. And what I would love to see is for people to go, I'm not going to think you're a moron because you disagree with me. But that is becoming increasingly difficult in our society. People are drawing these lines and have so much certainty that they're even willing to deny the obvious facts about history or about science. And, and that's a very difficult thing. That is, a, and I find what you say to be true in, in so much as, you know, I was, my grandfather always said that science and religion are not incompatible science and religion are part of the same search for knowledge. And if you embrace the search for knowledge, then you can embrace both. It was, you know, it was, it was Einstein who said God didn't play dice with the universe. So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be one or the other. And that's the, the, that divisive nature in, in uh, society today, I find disconcerting, but it's most disconcerting when I find it entering the public sphere of, you know, in politics and in decision making, where it leads to uh, self-defeating decisions by politicians that can hurt and harm all of us. And I, I don't know how you. I, I love the, the talk of of fossils. I've I've been more blunt in that. I go fossil. <laughs> Look fossil. <laughs> and I admit, I don't win many friends that way. <laughs> yeah. And, and now with the James Webb Space Telescope, we can also just say starlight. I mean, yes. the, the, the distance of the stars and, and Hubble, it's absolutely wonderful and beautiful. You know, I, I think at the museum, we actually created an entire planetarium show. We just, just uh, unleashed it about a year ago. And now it's going to the world. It's called God, Science, and Our Search for Meaning. And it talks about these two ways of knowing, this way of knowing that will help you understand the world around you and the world within you in physical terms. But then there's also this deep search for meaning where there is a spiritual reality that expresses it, itself in things like love and sacrifice and kindness and courage. And, and these are places where science and religion go together. And ultimately, both of them should come together in the same point. And it's, it's a phrase that means a lot to me, which is, are we courageous enough to greet reality as a friend? Are we mm -hmm. courageous enough to greet reality as a friend, whether that reality is about the virus and the pandemic, or whether that reality is about AI, or that reality is about anything? Let's just greet reality as a friend, kind of lower our certainties, give up our passion about putting someone else down and say, you know what? All I care about is the truth. I just want to find the facts as best I can 
to understand what reality is and then move in that direction together, both on the spiritual side of life and on the physical side of life. I find them inseparable. And uh, honestly, it, at some point in time, it's, it's, if you embrace religion, if you embrace Christianity, it's turn the other cheek. It's, it, it's it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's what, whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers that you do unto me. Those concepts and the golden rule, I find them inseparable from the search for, for meaning in science. Uh, call me naive. But, um, well, you know, it's interesting, those things that you pick out, of course, I agree with uh, completely in the moral realm. And then in the physical realm, what's interesting to me is how science itself sometimes just boils down to language. For instance, if you say, what makes up the atom, you would say, you know, the neutron and the proton and the electrons. You say, well, what makes up those things? And you say, quarks. well, and, and then eventually you get down to quarks. And then you say, well, what makes up a cork? And you're like, I don't know. And sometimes you, you get down to something where all it is, is language. It's meaning. It's, it's a name we give something in order to understand physical reality. But we still don't know what matter itself actually is. We, we can reduce it to a cork, but once we get down there, it's like, well, what makes that up? Same thing with dark matter. We don't really know. And so we, scientists have to hold reality with a little bit of a light hand. What is time? And how, let's, let's talk about gravity. Can we really understand that? And at some point, we have enough humility to say, I don't know, let's journey there together. Let's try to figure this out because it's wondrous to behold, but we don't actually know uh, what actually composes that. We, yeah, we don't know what we, we have no idea really what time is. We don't know how many dimensions there are. We, we, I saw a recent article about quantum foam, how nothing doesn't exist. I mean, there is, it, it's quantum foam. There is, there's no place out in space where there's nothing. There's always something. So that, that to me is, is where if you can't embrace that thought process, if you can't, then, then you're going to be lost. And I'll give you an example of there was a was a guy I know who always would preach turn the other cheek, mm. and uh, the first time somebody smacked him, he turned around and beat the living crap out of him. And I, I go, what happened to turn the other cheek? Well, uh, he said I have a right to defend myself. I, I I go, yeah, you do. I don't. I'm not not saying that you don't, but you preach one, but you did the other. So. Well, I can't actually turn the other cheek. Then I knew a kid in high school who actually I witnessed turn the other cheek when somebody smashed him when we were doing a, um, we had a booth at the uh, fair in uh, high school. His name was Tim Ritchie. Guy came after him and actually turned the other cheek. I've always used that as an example of of living it and not, and not preaching it. So I, I, I want you to know on a personal level that it, it still means something to me. And I use that often with my kids. But I I, I, I say that because it's it's that search for facts with you can you can say you 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 are looking for a fact, right? But to actually do it, as you said, the courageous, what was it to to the courageous enough to greet reality as a friend. I find that part of the same thing. If you say that you're searching for facts. And you actually fall in your own mindset. Does that make sense to you? Then you're not. Yeah, yeah it, it does take a lot of courage. And, and you know, Brian, I think that's, 
that is often what's happening right now in these these legislators legislatures that and i didn't mean to embarrass you by the way oh no 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 i remember that i I didn't even realize you were there at that time but i I was standing right next to you and i almost beat the living crap out of that guy no i remember that i remember that day uh but it was at our pie throwing booth i still have pictures of you and me getting hit with pies that day or uh, whipped cream uh, yeah that was a particularly dicey moment uh I, i i remember that but i do think you know responding with fear responding with violence these these are things that are actually increasing not decreasing in our society yep. and around our world and it's shocking to me it's shocking to me so when we were in Birmingham Alabama many 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 of our friends were black americans uh, african americans and we stay in deep close touch with them because the church we went to frankly was an african-american church and we were good friends and to this day right now they say this is the most dangerous time in america for an african-american and that just hurts my heart to hear why should it not be the other way why wouldn't we have progress toward more understanding toward more acceptance the idea that we're having less should be a deep concern. And that also extends over to how we think about, once again, things like science or things like vaccinations. And so we have a, we have a presidential candidate now from my state uh, who is an anti-vax person at the highest level. And people are actually thinking about voting for this person. <laughs> well, it's just so shocking. You know, vaccines work. I've been vaccinated every time they've asked me to get vaccinated. And folks, me and my wife, we've never gotten COVID, not once. And um, I don't know anyone who has a bad experience with it. It it saved a lot of people in the White House. It saved Donald Trump. It saved many people on his staff. And to, you know, it wasn't, and I was there that day. You talk about a lack of knowledge or lack of respect for the scientific method to tell us that sunlight and bleach would would fix i i asked that question that day i still i i, I you know I, I i was just i didn't even know how to react to that um to the, so that lack of you're right it's it's a divisiveness that's reflecting in all aspects of our culture i had someone this is the first week of trump in the white house one of their one of the wranglers came over to me and said so what's that last name? And I said, it's Karam. And I go, well, what kind of name is that? I said, it's a last name. What's your last name? (laughs) And she's, she says Bowman or something. I go, oh, there you go. You got a last name. I got a last name. She goes, you know what I mean? Is it, is it, is it Muslim? Is it? And I go, it's a last name. And they had someone on their staff, Scott Karam, who was his body man for a while. But they always want to pronounce it Kareem. And I always go, ah, that's the tall guy who, you know, played basketball. I get mistaken for him all the time. But it's that divisiveness. And so I think you're right. It's it's a symptom. But I don't know how you treat each individual symptom without treating the cause. And the cause, I don't know if we got a handle on how to deal with that. It's misinformation, disinformation. And um, I guess maybe that goes back to AI. I don't, but I, I think that's all people. 
Well, and you know, as long as we're talking about the cause, and this is where I think science helps us. I think we know the cause that evolutionarily, the cause is fear. We, yes. we were, we were, we came out of the jungle and we had a lot of things to be afraid of. And we thought the only way to go through life was to control the environments around us so that we had nothing to fear. And if something came into our environment that we feared, we would get rid of it. We'd and kill so it. We, <laughs> that's right. So we see the rise of fear. And then there were other people in our history, like Martin Luther King Jr. or um, like so many other people, St. Francis, Jesus, so many others said, you know what? You are humans. You have a choice. You can choose love over fear. You can actually do that. We can create societies of laws. We can create societies where, where we elevate human dignity. You do not have to go through life completely driven by fear. And so we've done that. But now we're, we're going away from that. We're going away from that. And we're going back to our native fears. And, and as a consequence, we're becoming very, very polarized in ways that, that make people afraid. And that is just a shame. It is just unnecessary. And I'm hopeful that a place like the Museum of Science can say, no, 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 no. Science is our common ground. Evidence is our common ground. We can live evidence-based lives. We do not have to give in to fear. But that is, I believe, what's happening around the world. I don't disagree. And in dealing with some of the people I've dealt with over the last decade, I think that speaks uh, volumes. How do you do, you, you talked about the one parent that, um, that, you know, or the one person that came in and you showed them the fossil. I, yeah. you know, I was at a, I was in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, and um, for a Trump rally, and I was sitting there, and this one woman had a, you know, fake news uh, t-shirt on and a MAGA hat, and she came over, and she goes, uh, which fake news was I? <laughs> when I told her I was with Playboy magazine, that just sent her on a loop, but she, she said, uh, she pointed to a friend of mine, Jim Acosta, she goes, I hate him, uh, mainstream media, Main I hate him, I hate Jim Acosta, I said, well, Jim's actually a nice fellow. Why don't you go over and talk to him? And he'll probably, you know, she walked over, introduced her, and he took a picture with her. And she came back going, I love me some Jim Acosta. I love Jim Acosta. It was it was the fear and not knowing. How do you deal with that? In a, I'm sure you've dealt with more than one person. with, But what other ways do you recommend that you deal with those people that have fear? You know, unfortunately, it's almost exactly what you just said. I, I do think it happens because of relationships and friendships. There are some other things that we can do. I think having a great economic policy where people have more hope and they have more better jobs and they have, uh, they're not afraid of their housing. These are the things when you don't have things that actually increase fear. And so it makes it much, much more uh uh, likely that people will have that kind of, I hate this, I hate that. So at one level, they're all connected. So a, a great, you know, school system and a great economic policy and a great healthcare system, all these things might reduce the fear that we have of each other. But at some point, we just have to talk to each other. We have to become friends. I think this is especially true in things like the uh, concerns people have about LGBTQAI stuff. It's like, how many of, of those folks are your friends, really? <laughs> or I mean, do you know? <laughs> and, and once you become friends, you just look at reality differently because you look at it through their, through the, the, the vision of your friend. 
but that's too high of a standard right now. I think that I think to force people into those relationships would be impossible. So I do think as a society, we have to have other things that take the fear out of the future. And, and what do you think, recommend? Well, I do think I do think, for instance, the kinds of things on climate change. People are all worried about, you know, uh, whether or not we should believe that climate change is real. Well, of course it's real, but if we really had a many, 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 many millions of great green economy jobs, all of a sudden people would be like, yeah, we're united in our home. So for instance, you and I are both from Kentucky. Uh, coal is a dying area uh, in terms of, of, the, uh, of the economy. But if those, area, if those areas of the country did have next generation nuclear, if we had fusion down there and could produce some great green jobs in those parts of the country, and that's happening, that's happening, that's good. Well, it's not happening now, but it's going to happen. Then it's happening had slowly. A, yeah. Slowly, if people had a brighter economic future, I think they would just take some of the heat out of the fear they have of each other. I don't disagree with that either. I've traveled across this country via car because my my wife and I are now living on the East Coast and the West Coast with our kids. But in traveling across the country, I have seen in the last year that uh, the you, you talk about jobs. It is the the infrastructure bill has created jobs and it has brought people that concern is less. And I so I see a lessening there. But the um, I still see vast parts of this country that seem to have been hollowed out that there yeah. are there are not people even living there anymore um, yeah. and that's a that's a problem yes it is i think you know george packer wrote that great book uh about a decade ago or so now called the the unwinding and i think we're still seeing the unwinding uh, uh, of our fabric of our country and I, that unwinding will continue to take place which is too bad and it's sad and and even there, we do have to greet reality as a friend and say, okay, the economy has moved. I need to be trained in different ways. And I think people will pick up on that. So when you drive across the country and you drive across a state like Kansas and you see all these wind farms growing out of these cornfields, you realize, well, wait a second, there can be a change. This is a clean energy uh, you know, source. It's producing wealth. Uh, people can change. And people will change, but but it, it may come at some loss down the road, and that's that's regrettable. But you do have to move on. Well, here's the question before we go to our next break. The last question for you: That's all well and good, but then again, I did point out earlier that there are people who will gripe about science and the problems, and that science is causing problems, and they don't like science over your cell phone. So, yeah. <laughs> what you have. What you're saying is fine in theory, but in practice, there are people who have somehow been able to do the 1984 uh, job and balance two conflicting thoughts in their head and, and spout nonsense while they do so. So I, how do you deal, and you have to deal with that in, in, a, in a science museum, how do you deal with that particular problem? You know, you're absolutely correct. Some of the biggest anti-vax people, some of the biggest anti-vaccine you know, vaccine for COVID people tended to be, well, not tended to be, but could be engineers and very well educated. Yeah. So I think on those 
you just have to agree to disagree on that thing you disagree about and then find ways to work together on the things you do agree about. So for instance, I have a, a friend, he is a friend by the way, who refused to get vaccinated and he and I would argue about that. But guess what we agreed on? We agreed on climate change. So guess what we worked on? We agreed, worked on climate change and education, everything. So on some things you have to nestle your disagreement within a small of corner as possible and work as much as possible on the things you do agree about so that it doesn't get elevated to controlling your whole relationship. We have to put our disagreements in the context of our many, many, many agreements. That's how I work on it. Anyway. You're applying the scientific method to friendship. I love it. <laughs> I Here's the thing that I, I, you know, it's the people who tell me climate always changes. What the hell is your problem? I'm like, well, the weather always changes. The climate is a different than, than weather, but climate does change. But if you're going to tell me, and, and the, the example I use is, for example, if you had a terrarium, and you sit it on your your table, and there's nothing in there but plants and waters, and you know you, you, it's stable. And you water it, and you know there's a frog in there. Now, put eight billion people on that in that terrarium, and tell me you, they have no effect. There's no way that you could logically look at eight billion people in this great terrarium called Earth and say that we don't have effects. It, what kills me is that. They'll admit that we have had some effect, right? So, you know, we changed water flow. We changed what we, we seed clouds. We build buildings. We build heat islands. All of those have an effect, but they won't or can't grasp. And I think to your point earlier, it's out of fear. The larger issue of making the, the, the planet unpopulatable. And, yeah. and I, and then again, I think there are some businesses that, thrive on just trying to make as much money and not caring about it. no doubt uh, there are a lot of um there are a lot of people who do make a whole living out of fear for sure i, I think that other than um, politicians <laughs> I, I think unfortunately what's the way to get to people is not through reason actually i i think you know you're not very very rarely Will, will people be changed on the basis of the facts? But if they do have an experience of this extreme heat, I guarantee you there are going to be more people in Phoenix now that uh, will be listening to climate change because the sidewalk can reach 170 degrees now. And it's just that the hottest day in 125,000 years happened on July 3rd. And every day after that was hotter. Yeah. So. It, it, at some point, people are going to fall down on the sidewalk and they're going to get second degree burns and they're going to go, oh, OK, let me, let's talk about what we can do about this. And so this emotional experience of reality is unfortunately sometimes what it takes to get people to change their thinking about something. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. 
Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Kerman. With us is Tim Ritchie, the president of the Museum of Science in Boston. And uh, I, I, Tim, I, you know, one of the things I like to do on, on this show, and, you know, I, I have an advantage because I, I've, I've known you for so long, but we liked, I like to break things down. So people, you know, we talked here about uh, friendships and getting people to know one another. So one of the things I like to do with the guests and with John Kirby, it was really easy. I, I asked him where him and his wife would like to go and what's their, their beautiful away weekend. And I found out that he likes uh, country music and Jimmy Buffett. But I, I, I did not. I did not know that. So with you, where would you and your wife like to? You got a getaway weekend. Where are you going to go? You know, the sacred place, the fun place, the place on earth that we relax the most is in the mountains of North Carolina. Wow. Uh, so we met at college in North Carolina and, and uh, we went to law school and medical school in North Carolina. So the mountains of North Carolina is where we go to be reminded kind of about kind of the good things in life, the wholesome things in life. And, and that's always very rejuvenating. It's not very exotic, but it's very rejuvenating. Well, that, that no, rejuvenation is great. All right. So if you're sitting down and you're in your cabin in North Carolina, what music are you listening to? You know, this sounds so kind of uninformed i could tell you at one level i'd be listening to wonderful sort of uh you know classical music but really the music we love the most is old style r&b i mean you know wow. it's oh no yeah it's 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 all of that wilson pickett so, huh wilson pickett that no, no 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 not not that not 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 that old stuff um you know I, i'm i'm talking about uh, Roberta Flack. And oh. I'm talking, uh, so not that old. So 70s, 60s, uh, R&B. That's the kind of thing. Where temptations. You're, temptations. The kind of music you can cook dinner to and dance at the same time. So that's what we're listening to. There you go. There you go. So <laughs> as a as a member of the class of 79, we're dating ourselves. What what from that era would you like to see come back that that isn't popular now well um at one point i really kind of was embarrassed by all the disco music of our generation i, I was, still can't stand disco but <laughs> but, but it's such kind of it's made its comeback in things like abba and that sort of thing that's sort of sweet you know honestly in the 70s late 70s i did think there was this sense of progress actually that we really had this sense that, wow, it is, it is inevitable and good and right for us to, to have diversity. For instance, you are the first person I have spoken to that put that in exact. I have said that there is a, there was a small window in the seventies before Reagan came in. I think that those four years of, of, and, and I guess Carter, but it was, you know, between Carter and, and Reagan, but there was, I, I remember, do you remember the show uh, One Day at a Time? Oh, sure. And there was a, there was a scene, I remember, where the mother was dating 
um, a, a, an African-American man. And, and she said, it feels uncomfortable, but for our children, which was us, it yeah. won't be. And yeah. it be, and it got worse instead of better. But God, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. But you were no, saying- no, we're saying the same thing. And and it was I think what was strange about that. Now looking back on it, is that that wasn't even questioned. the the the, exactly. the hard part was how do we get there. The, the hard part was, okay, how are we going to work this out? How are we going to do economic development? What about education? But there was no doubt that the right thing was to have a world that was safe for diversity. I mean, that was just commonly accepted as the right thing to do. So what I'd like to go back to is an era when it is commonly accepted that that is the vision of the beautiful community, as opposed to this very balkanized ver- version that's very hard, very libertarian, very, very mean to people who are on the other side of the opportunity track. So that's what I'd love to have as our national zeitgeist. Really, As long as we don't bring back the platform shoes, the wide ties and white guys with afros, I'm in with. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and, and the shirts, the ruffled shirts. The shirts oh, with the, the purple and the and terrible. Like, I've got pictures of me in those and my wife just laughs. And I go, burn it. <laughs> but you're right. I, I, and it was so it, 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 at that point in time, it wasn't, you're right. I, I never questioned that this is, you know, where it was going and, and it was good to go that way. And yeah. unfortunately I, you know, I, and I, you know, I, we haven't spoken much about politics, but, you know, but me, it was when I was in college and I think that, you know, and Reagan came in and began tearing apart my industry. I have never been in since, and every president since then has dismantled the first amendment and in, in some form or fashion. And I, I think I got in at the tail end, you know, right before they, I was actually working at the courier before they sold it to Gannett. And that was, dude, that was my goal. My whole life was just to work at the Courier. And I thought it was such a great newspaper. And then I just watched everything that we thought was going to happen just get dismantled over the years. And I, to me, it's frightening. And, you know, now in speaking to John Kirby today, he's got grandkids like I do. And I said, so with all that being said, do you still have hope for the future? And he said, yes, I do. And I that was reassuring. So that's my final question to you. Do you feel there's hope for the future. I absolutely do. I I think that what it means to be a human, among other things, is to solve problems in innovative ways. And I don't think that's changed. That is deep in our core. Uh, So I do have hope for the future. I do have some suspicion that things will get worse before they get better. And I wish that that were not true. But I do think the arc of the history does, in fact, bend toward justice. I do believe that. And I do believe we will figure it out. Uh, So I have some hope. I do think that the climate issue is so significant that it does in fact pose an existential threat to humanity. So whether we can solve the problems fast enough, including climate change to actually avoid the worst of that is an open question. But do I have hope? Yes, I, I do have hope. How could you possibly ever leave the shores of safety without hope. And that's what we have to do. God bless you. I agree. That's, you know, and that reminds me of the, for those who don't have hope, 
I'll go to my favorite uh, chapter and verse in the Bible, Acts 9, 5. Saul's on the way to Damascus, right? He's going to kill Christians because eh, he's got a hobby. He's got to do something. Falls on the ground. Here's the Lord in the sky. And he says, who, who art thou? And he says, I'm, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now rise and go into <laughs> Actually, I, I got... I got a very conservative sheriff in South Carolina when I was with America's Most Wanted to do an interview with me. I saw this huge Bible and it was a King James version on his desk and he wouldn't do the interview because he said, uh, you know, no graven images. And he was, you know, and, and, you know, Jesus would do this. And Jesus, I said, if I can show you in the Bible where Jesus called his enemies, a bunch of pricks, will you do the interview? And he said, I've read that Bible backwards and forwards, son. There ain't no way that's in there. So I, I said, flip over to Acts 9, 5 and read it. And he goes, Jesus wouldn't curse. And he reads it and he looks at me and goes, son of a bitch, I'm doing the interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best. Oh, that's great. I really enjoyed uh, this. And I I must confess, I had not remembered that verse, so I'm glad. <laughs> Still, my favorite. <laughs> so anyway, Tim, I appreciate you, and, and I uh, love you being on the show. Love to have you back. I love talking science, man. It's it's a lot of fun. Thank you, Brian. Take care. You too. Stick around. I got to do this, and uh, we are just ask the question. We'll we come at you two or three times a week. Join us this weekend for our weekly wrap up of news and uh, with our friend. Michael Zeldin, who is a former federal prosecutor and the editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John Bennett. And then join me next week as we talk to Norm Eisen about the ongoing Trump indictment. So stick around. Lots more to talk about all this week on Just Ask the Question. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast.